0: Like if you make a perfect store of value, it would mean that that thing, this one unit is now pinned to all other prices, right? Forward in time. So that thing can forever buy X loaves of bread or whatever. Well, great, you just killed markets. You, that is literally, you're describing price fixing. <laughs> it's like, it is the, not a the, goal. The deal
1: that wheat should be this and shoes should be this and the ratio should be fixed at all times.
0: So yeah, like that, great Stalin. Welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. Now, on to today's episode.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast. My name is Dixon Buchanan. I am the Vice President of Marketing here at Monetary Metals, and I'll be hosting today's episode. I'm joined, as always, with the founder and CEO of Monetary Metals, Keith Weiner. We are super excited about today's episode because we have a very special guest uh, lined up for the show today. And I really mean that. Uh, This person is special. If you've spent any time in the wide realm of Twitterdom, you'll know that his presence casts a long, dark shadow over those who foolishly chase bull markets, tout speculative assets, and dare to utter half-baked Financial sophisms in his presence. I'm referring, of course, to Travis Kimmel, but I realize you may not know him uh, by his proper name. You may actually know him by one of his many online aliases. This is Travis, aka the dollar fatalist, aka the wizard of web 1.0, <laughs> Travis, aka the crusher of cryptocurrency dreams, and my personal favorite, the illustrious. Bear Lord So Sir Bear Lord, it is with great respect that Keith and I welcome you on our show today.
0: Wow, that is the best intro I've ever received, so thanks for having me.
2: <laughs> yeah, let me um, just start by saying, if you're on Twitter and you're not following at Colorado Travis, that's Colorado spelled just like the state, go ahead, press pause right now, go onto Twitter, follow him. And, and trust me, you will be glad that you did. Um, really, really good takes on macro markets, business, the occasional you know, philosophy, kind of cultural moment tweet. It's one of those rare accounts, in my opinion, that makes you, makes you think and laugh often in, in equal proportion. So do yourself a favor, go follow Twitter. We'll, we'll link to his account in the show notes. Uh, but let's start, actually, Travis, if you don't mind, by giving us a little bit of your, your backstory, how you became interested in finance and um, the origins of of Bear Lord.
0: Yeah. So I uh, come from the tech world. I was a, a programmer for a little while, then got into managing um, software teams and then eventually started a company that did. It was an analytics company um, with a friend of mine, Ben. I was one of the co-founders um, and... Uh, was the CEO of that for about four and a half years. And then we sold that. Um, And I'm now, you know, still in the tech world. Um, My interest in financial markets is kind of twofold. One, you know, I think the, the, one of the things I find really enjoyable is it's sort of this infinite game, right? Like there's always more that you can learn about finance. It's very, um, the breath is just so intense. I dig that. (laughs) Um, So that part's fun. And then I find it to be, Um, I I like the, the sort of enforced discipline of finance. I mean, risk management, like the feedback loop is, is ultimately just sort of baked in. I think that part's really fun. Um, The people who are in it have have kind of an edge to them as a result of that. And uh, yeah, it's just a good crowd. Um, And, you know, I, I think one of the things that's really interesting about finance is um, a lot of the stuff that it gives that edge is actually kind of boring. Like it's really boring. I mean, like a lot of the world is just sort of like understanding balance sheets, <laughs> which is which I think a lot of people don't. You know, it's not it's not really an area a lot of people want to dig in on. But if you can if you can develop a fascination for that, it becomes really powerful. So I've been trying to do that.
1: I wrote a uh, article back in, in uh, maybe maybe it was February twenty fifteen, January February, right after the Swiss franc. Um, busted its peg uh, against the euro, the Swiss National Bank lost something like 20% of Swiss annual GDP in a millisecond. Um, yeah, and then the entire Swiss yield curve out to 30 year maturity plunged below zero, went negative. Yeah, and, um, I wrote a really long article, I want to say it was five, six thousand words, essentially arguing the Swiss, not essentially, it, arguing the Swiss franc was going to collapse, although nobody knows when. It was, you know, it was was a balance sheet flows kind of analysis, like all the really boring stuff. Yeah. It turned out to be such a hot potato. It was so controversial, and people either hated me or loved me based on the fiery conclusion. And nobody really seemed to have done the reading of, like, what I said. It was a pretty boring, you know, something (laughs) something an accountant or a finance professor could like maybe. And um, that that stirred things up to such a a great degree that –
0: I don't have any regrets doing it, but it was an interesting experience. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, finance markets are also like highly emotional and um, the emotional part is sort of the opposite of what you actually get paid for. So that's kind of a fun dynamic. <laughs> hey, don't, don't be dissing my ass asset now.
1: <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm no, to, you know what? Oh man.
0: Yeah, no, I'm actually a, I'm actually a, a fan of that aspect of it. I think, you know, the, the longer you sort of try to play in finance markets, the more humbling it is really. I mean, it's just hard, you know, like a lot of this stuff, especially like you said, you know, you can have these theses, which um, you think are kind of bulletproof. Like you're kicking them around and you're like, it has to play out at some point point. and it can be years. And you're just sort of sitting there looking the fool for years. And so it, um, it's sort of, I don't know, it's a test of your metal or something as well. I mean, I think the dollar bowls went through that recently, right? Where, like the dollars is falling and falling. It's like, yeah, but the way the system works, like that thing's coming back. <laughs> it's coming back at some point. And you right. know, we're sitting there and floating around 88 or whatever it was at in Dixie for years or for you know months of last summer. And then you know the inevitable always comes. It's hard to fight gravity. Here we are at 104.
1: Yeah. Um I, I must be a glutton for punishment because I love to really promote the thesis at the time when the world seems to be going against it. Same. I think that's why we're friends. <laughs> Most of my uh, first wave of Bitcoin criticisms were during 2017 while it was skyrocketing. Yeah, totally. Um, it turns out I wrote the last one and I decided for other reasons, okay, enough here. I kicked this thing to death. Uh, almost perfectly top-ticked it in December of 2017. Yeah. Completely unknown. Every one of those articles, I was like, where's the Bitcoin price going to go next? I don't know and neither yeah. does anybody else. Neither is yeah. that guru that you're paying to tell you where it's going to go. He doesn't know either. Yeah. Um, and then um, you know, recently uh the uh, the bond bear case, inflation and rising interest rates and all that. And yeah. my thesis for a very long time has been that the mega trend is falling.
2: And every I totally while, agree.
1: Every once in a while I get this troll on am uh, you know, my Twitter, he's like, You're still wrong, you know, after all these months. And it's like, how many times do I have to explain to you? I'm not this isn't a trade. I'm not a trading service. I'm not saying go, go long treasuries with leverage. I'm yeah. saying that here's the macro dynamic. Here's how the engine's turning and everybody can pretend it's going to go the other way. And there's a yeah. certain amount kind of you know, slop or flex in the system, but this is going to come back in yeah. the sense. You mark
0: my words. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, any kind of macros, trading anything macro with leverage is like, ooh it's dicey business. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, Keynes was not
1: right about a lot of things, but one of the things he was right about was markets can stay irrational
0: longer than you can stay solvent. Way longer, yeah. 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 I mean, you know, especially times like these, you see these moves are whipping around. It's like leverage just blows people out, even if they end up being right. Talking about uh, whipping around, um,
1: a friend of mine is a commodities broker in Chicago, mostly uh, focusing on euro dollars. Uh, Yeah. Which doesn't mean the same thing as the Euro dollar milkshake, you know, Jeff Snyder thing on Twitter. He's just yeah. in the, um, you know, interest rate future, uh, you know, what they call the Euro dollar contract. Um, but a buddy of his is in um, Energy Pit. And um, there's action on $50 Nat Gas. And what did you tell me? Like for for, for January. Nat wow. Gas is, is like, what is it right now? Twelve dollars or something? I don't, yeah. know, I don't follow it real closely. Um, Depends on where. And there's yeah. the action on um, five hundred dollar crude futures. Whoa, that's wild. Five hundred, and I'm like, just imagine what would happen. Or this is going to kill
0: people if this happens. Yeah. Totally. I mean, it already is. You know, you see these the um the retailers coming in with these just horrific earnings reports. You know, I mean, like the consumer is kind of dead, and it looks like. The solution to that is everybody's reaching for either, you know, the credit card at these nutty rates or, or these, you know, these like buy now, pay later, shadow leverage businesses, which are allowing people to, you, you know, you can like finance your pizza order. I mean, this stuff is just so dangerous. Oh it's absurd, right? Like saying, yeah, You're, do nutters, checkouts. Yeah, 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 you're really like nutters. ordering lunch. It's like, hey, you want to pay for this over the next three weeks? I'm like, what? Why are people doing that?
1: oh man it's only nutty if you if you actually repay yeah right it's just purely not it's it's not real it's nominal
0: yeah totally yeah we're getting into an interesting spot here i mean one of the things you know to to circle back to the bond thing you know to my mind i I, I, you know i I get the same twitter trolls (laughs) it's like is that still alive yeah it's very much alive i mean what you look like where's growth going to come from you know i mean we we're i don't quite know how the the path that we're going to take, I have no idea. Um, but, but I know that, um, that we go into these moments where people just sort of like hate cash. And, you know, if you think about that, hating cash is the same. It's the same dynamic in play when you lever up, right? People are just trimming their their buffer for being wrong down to this little nub. And then with these financing services going even deeper than that, right? And I think those kind of dynamics just don't typically when the consumer is that hard pressed and we've been, you know, we're in this sort of cash bonanza phase here in COVID where people got a little nihilistic. And and when you're, when you're, when there's death in the air, this is like a historical phenomenon when there's death in the air, which there was a little bit of, you know, um, people just sort of live for today. And so it it, it pushed this wild spending boom into a supply shock. And I just don't know that anyone is really calibrating what it's going to be like to mean revert from that, right? That's pretty brutal. What's your read on that?
1: I've been writing a lot about what I call um, lockdown whiplash. Yeah. At the lockdown, which, you know, people think like the economy and the supply chains, like your VCR, just press pause. Yeah and you know you go to the bathroom you get on a call with your you know your friend and you know two hours later you hit unpause and everything's fine yeah and um the real world keeps moving forward and everybody has to keep paying you know rent on their building and has to keep paying the debt service on the ships and the trucks yeah. and all those things and some of those people go away a lot of the ships were um, abandoned or otherwise shut down in all the wrong locations Totally. And there's not a lot of spare capacity in the system. So yeah. all of a sudden you know everything's stuck in the wrong location and, and things are in the Philippines or Singapore or LA and they need to be in China picking up the next load. There isn't enough slack to just say, okay, fine, sell them all back to China. Like yeah. okay, that takes whatever, three, four days. I don't know how long that takes. And that during that time, everything's stacking up and getting worse and worse and worse. Totally. So people see rising prices and call it inflation one of the things i've written a lot about is it's actually rising and falling prices falling at the source people producing yeah. stuff can't get paid hardly anything because the warehouses are overflowing with them and the consumers are paying more because the supply chain the logistics train the freight carriers the port in la infamously, you know nobody can you know they can barely keep up like in normal times then you have this like shock and yeah. that you know, it takes months to work off. It's like, and um, you know, if you live in a major, crowded area like New York or LA, and there's an accident on the highway, and yeah. course, you know, traffic comes to a standstill. You're driving home at eight thirty at night, and the traffic still has a wave that stops. With you know, where the scene of the accident yeah, totally. hours ago, right? It's long been cleared, but traffic is a, is a compression wave. And yeah, I mean, and that compression wave doesn't work its way out until, until midnight or something when finally the density of cars is
0: too low to continue to sustain the wave. Yeah. And um, yeah. So, and then, you know, you, on top of that, you get these longer term effects in, in decision making, which I'm, I'm really interested to watch how this stuff plays. I mean, you know, after you go through a supply shock like this, you know, maybe think about keeping a little more inventory around because the world is changing or, you know, whatever that, whatever the output of that thought process is. And so for these businesses that deal in, um, in physical goods that have to be shipped around, the, the downstream implications of that, especially with rates a little higher, like you got to finance that somehow, right? Like th- that storage isn't free. So you're either, maybe you're borrowing or, but all, you know, so the cost of money is going up at a time when, when business behavior is becoming a little more risk averse from a supply chain perspective, that's just, that is just horrible for people I mean, that's it's right.
1: really bad. I saw, you know, so Walmart had their earnings miss, and um, yeah, somebody posted man. a graph showing their inventory levels, and yeah. the graph of inventory levels, I guess, versus earnings went back to I think the 1980s. A long-term graph. Yeah. And inventory levels right now shot the moon, like yeah. unprecedented during the, we decades of this the Walmart graph. And, yeah. and the one one person commented, I have no idea whether this is right or not, but it, it sort of rings true. Is that real inventory that has real value or is that um, I don't know how do we put it you know uh, stuff going
0: obsolete fast and uh, you know, trinkets and junk right it could there's scenarios where it could be a pure loss you know if, it get, if the product gets outdated and that's fascinating you know um, the other thing that I, I love your example with the traffic because you know the way that you solve that is you have one car just sort of like slowly and methodically go forward to even out that ripple. Like there are these, there's these, uh, there's this guy on YouTube who goes and he'll sort of like try to iron out these traffic things. And you basically have to leave a buffer in front of you. Cars are going in front of them. And, and that's kind of what these big retailers are doing with inventory, right? They're trying to sort of, they're, they're acting as that buffer, but there's a cost associated with that. I mean, their incentive is basically, you know, if Walmart's the if Walmart can remain the place where people know to go, cause they have stuff in theory, that's long-term good for the brand. And that's great. But they're going to absorb that price it and again someone has to pay for it there's there's a beauty to it in that like the private sector is trying to write this thing um but but they're going to do it at a cost
1: I was going to say, a, a lot of these guys it isn't necessarily strategic forward thinking like that just, Fair. Like, just like on the highway it's very rare to see somebody who's going to be a good samaritan that tries to even yes it. people are like jam and cotton, and you know, <laughs> you know just making it worse what, what the retailers were doing and I, I you know I read a lot of these stories during the height of the um, supply chain crunch I guess sort of as we were emerging from lockdown so initially yeah. nobody was going to the stores obviously so the stores were sitting on goods that they couldn't sell yeah um, right which must have been some interesting losses that, that they suffered from that and then during the height of like we're emerging and then but the supply chain isn't delivering um, you know it's They have all this inventory that's somewhere in the logistics chain. And then they need inventory to sell. So then they're like air shipping stuff, paying more for it, not necessarily making margin on it. But what that means is that they've bought double what they really needed for Christmas. And eventually all those shipping containers will work their way through the system. And eventually then they end up with like a surplus of inventory. It could be a Walmart graph is showing that exact you know, dynamic, you know, playing out. And um, the thing you always have to ask with, with a graph that ends with a vertical like that, does that continue or is that is that going to level off at, at 32? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure anybody yeah. knows. Maybe the Walmart supply chain people
0: know. Yeah. Uh,
1: you know, well, you have
0: this, you know, this inventory is needs to be cleared either by losses or by consumers buying it. And the consumer, you know, it's coming in you have this happening in time where the consumers are already under pressure. I mean, I thought the, uh, one of the greatest earnings reports recently was the, uh, Restoration Hardware CEO, who I think, you know, that was a month ago or something by now. He just read it out. He's like, look, this is, this is an unbelievable environment. You know, we either, um, every retailer I know that, that earnings report is, er, that was one of the best things I've ever heard from a CEO on earnings. It was fantastic. Most should you go read it. Um, he basically just said, came out and said, look, everybody I know in, in retail is is faced with this dilemma where it's like, what are we going to do? Are we going to eat the loss here to try to preserve demand and preserve, you know, brand loyalty? Are we going to try to pay that forward to a customer who can't afford it? I mean, there's just there's no real great outcome there. Some mm-hmm. at, at some level, w- we're looking at a, you know a negative growth environment here, probably. I mean, what do you think we go, I mean, GDP coming in negative was pretty funny. Everybody's sort of in denial about that, but
1: I don't know, it looks pretty bad. Yeah, I, I don't know where this goes with leverage, how many of yeah. these sellers are zombies, interest rates being hiked. One of the yeah. I say, I say this often, um, which is if one's only concerned with consumer prices, and one was either completely ignorant in the sense of like Dunning-Kruger Kruger effect ignorant or recklessly callously indifferent to all of the other harms caused by falling interest rates. But one yeah. only cared about concern prices. One should want falling interest rates, not rising interest rates. So, so right, now, we've been right now we have um, supply contraction um, and obviously in energy and food and all the things that are exported by Ukraine and Russia. Um, yeah. But you know, country by country, Indonesia, India, they're starting to announce bans on exports. Yeah. Right, so, so this starts to spread. In this environment, the, the producers who are still solvent, that are still, you know, they want to work to expand capacity because there's an opportunity to make money here, right? What do we do? Yeah. We make it more difficult for them to obtain financing. Yes. And for those fewer of them who can obtain financing, we make it much more expensive than it used to be. And you yeah. think we're going to cure lower prices? there's going to be such a wreckage of suppliers destroyed in every market.
0: And then we're going to say, oh, see inflation. Yeah. And and then, you know, the fix ultimately, I mean, I think at some point here, we got to see them, you know, essentially try to pancake rates to get all that going again, which is effectively, you know, that's kind of the bond thesis is at some point this causes enough damage that we got to restart all that appetite for CapEx. in in a really bruised up economy where like consumers bruise, businesses are, I I don't see how, I don't see how you get persistently high rates from here. No, Uh, I was going to say there's a term from uh,
1: computers and software, which is the term stateless. And that's the ideal API, you know, stateless. And I used used to use the opposite term when I was a software developer, stateful. you know, know, things that have a memory. So you call the same function with some inputs and you get a different answer because the function has a memory and it It knows what happened yesterday or whatever. Mm. People are quite stateful. Totally. You offer them the same, you know, interest rate or the same incentive today versus, uh, you know, let's call it February, 2020. They're not gonna behave the same because they remember what happened. Totally. Businesses. So we're in this huge climate of uncertainty uh, regulatory uncertainty, tariff uncertainty, r- leaving aside war and all the uncertainty that creates. And, you know, and then you go and hike rates, go and destroy, decimate industries wholesale. Then you say, oh, oh, oh you no, know, mistake, sorry, 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 we're gonna go lower rates. Is that gonna get the same effect it's that bad. if you hadn't you know, jacked them up in the first place? Obviously not. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's yeah. very hard to predict how and who, and there's always a new entrepreneur with fresh capital, or at least that's the theory, which you know, kind of reminds me of Atlas Shrugged when it's like, oh, Mr. Reardon, you know, how are you supposed to you know, handle this latest new crushing burden that we're putting on your shoulders? You'll find a way. You always have. Yeah. You know, every time we destroy industries, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's always a new investor coming in with new capital to buy up the old assets and restart it and hire people. And will that
0: be true? I think, I think there's a world of hurt coming for sure. I think so too. I think so too. I mean, you know, in, in, we we tend to think of investors, we like personify them, right? Like the brave investor or whatever. But I think in aggregate, a lot of the investment recently, you you listen to things like passive investing and all that, a lot of this is sort of like it's systemic investing, you know, like people drip their 401ks in, people, you know, 529 plans for their kids. There's just this systemic push toward assets. Um, you know, the products get repackaged. People don't necessarily think of themselves as investing in assets, but they're in some target date fund or whatever. Um, if, if, we, if we were to see people really get blown out on that stuff and and see the appetite to deploy capital just decrease broadly, that's not great. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, that creates lasting damage. It's one of the reasons why I'm so, you know, um, aggro on Twitter about um, Bitcoin is I think, there's a real danger in, in the whole retail revolution component of it. Um, I right. think if, if people get really stung, like it's, you know, I'm not against gen pop making gains trading. That's great. You know, go have your fun, get your gamble block, <laughs> but you know, it, it's a, it's a zero sum game at best. And as you and I have discussed, it's more likely a negative sum game. Negative sum. Absolutely. And, and so, if people get burned really hard by that and and internalize this message of like deploying capital is risky, then it's not like the, you know, it's not like that's a minor thing. I mean, if, if America sort of thinks like, yeah, you know, I'm going to raise my cash levels forever. That's a meaningful decrease in the amount of capital available for just everything. CapEx for entrepreneurship, it's just sort of society wide. And I, the more i look at where we're heading the more i think there's a real risk there um and you couple that with some of the other dynamics in play like you know the boomers i mean for them taking a loss is pretty bad because they're no longer out there in the economy really working most of them um so i think you could get a real um you could get a a real proper um long-term decline in the amount of capital available for industry entrepreneurship all that let me, let
1: me just tweak that slightly and say all that capital Um, I I wrote an article years ago called "The Credit Gradient," and this idea that um, even in normal times, of course, you know, Fortune 500 companies with AAA credit ratings get a lot more credit, a lot cheaper than mom and pops and early stage companies. Totally. But when the when the government uh, or you know lowers the, the interest rate or sets in motion this dynamic, which causes Forty years of falling interest rates, and, and or what I didn't say in that article, but looking today with all the uncertainty from COVID, um, the uncertainty tilts. So you have this like think of this as a pool of liquidity, and the the big companies are on the deep end to begin with. All you're doing yeah. is you're tilting it even more. Yes, um, and so you know what a is savings is savings is like. People keep dollars in a bank account, so it's not like they, it's not like it goes away. Right. But it goes to it goes to the balance sheets of JP Morgan and City and you know yes. corporations who have less and less productive opportunities to do with it. Because if That's you're managing right. trillions of dollars, you can't really focus on the entrepreneurial yeah. and early stage end. You need no. to deploy, you know, obviously they have a team of, of asset managers there. You know, a friend of mine who's in the asset management business was talking about somebody who wasn't nearly as big as um, JP Morgan or anybody like that, they said, yeah, the, you know, their team, their average guy on their team, you know, ha- has to look after a portfolio of something like half a billion to a billion dollars. Yeah. They can't be looking at 10, 20, 30, $50 million valuation startups. Well, no, it's wildly inefficient. The is and where all the value creation is. Yeah. Um, and so they have to just be looking at, okay, we're going to buy real estate. We're going to buy S and P 500 companies. And so you get yeah. this, over excess of capital on the companies who don't need it and don't have anything productive to do with it and they get bloated and the management teams find more creative ways to um you know help themselves to that via bonuses and and. Uh, i mean
0: the, you know the, there's that that dynamic is, is exists at a number of levels another one is you know when we were running our company we took some debt along the way um and we were the the amount we paid for that would sound absurd to most you know, people who think about like business, I looked it up the other day, we were paying 11%, which is pretty spicy, right? But it was unsecured. And we're startup, like there's nothing, it's unsecured debt. So the way they underwrite that is they, they clip you for a small warrant, um, which helps de-risk the portfolio as a book, and then you're paying high interest rates, and they underwrite um, essentially your growth line. And, and for us, it felt like free money, because we were um, growing at 300% a year. So it's like, You know, it's better than equity. (laughs) capital, But I I think that dynamic is really interesting. So for a small entrant, higher rates can be overcome by growth. And so when you have these higher rate dynamics, if you're a small business, those higher rates are actually competitive edge against a a, a massive incumbent because a massive incumbent can't pay those kind of rates because they're just not as efficient. Like small startups are wildly efficient. I mean, you know, to a level that's just sometimes pretty ruthless. (laughs) <laughs> um, very scrappy, all that stuff. And so you can pay these higher rates and, you know, you're breaking into a market. There's just a lot of of growth ahead of you. And when you get a, a, a um, an economy in which all of the, in which there's just low rates everywhere. Like these incumbents just come along. They see anybody vaguely competitive. They just buy them and take them out or, you know, lower their prices and put them out of business. It's this very pro monopoly kind of situation when you have persistent low rates. And it's really unfortunate because like, you know, I think America is really good at entrepreneurship. It's one of the things that we're, 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 it's one of our, you know, it's the thing we value as a society. And so a lot of people like to give it a go, Um, but it's just harder and harder for, for new entrants into the economy, whether that is a millennial trying to buy their first home or a small business to compete with these huge entrenched incumbents when you have persistently low rates. We just reinforce that
1: um, entrepreneurship um, component of American culture. Um, yeah, you know, I've traveled all around the world, both in the Anglosphere sphere and, and other places, and um, in a lot of places, there's very much a sense of you shouldn't dare to try to rise above your station. Totally. And if you know, if if somebody is trying to really go for the big brass ring and, and start a company, that's gonna become a, a multi-billion dollar enterprise and change the world in some way, there's a fair degree of ill-wishing and you know hope for Schadenfreude. And you know, if that company fails, that person's you know, so so while they're trying and while there looks like they're succeeding, there's a, you know, you have to cut down the tall poppies, is how they would phrase it in a lot of places. And then if that guy should fail, there's a hey, what the hell did you expect? You got what you deserved. You got what was coming to you. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't want to name countries and whatever. I have friends in, in most of these places uh, who don't share that particular view, but that's pretty endemic out there. And in America, you know, there's so many things. There's Michael Jordan saying, "I've missed more shots on goal than most people have taken." Totally. It's not how many times you fall down; it's that you have to get up one more time than you fell. There's so many things here that says, "Hey, look." Even if you fail as an entrepreneur and your venture goes out of business, you learn something, your next venture is going to be smarter. There is a next venture. There's this presumed optimism. Meanwhile, of course, we're we're, we're we're breaking that because we keep adding more and more regulations that make it harder and harder to raise capital. Obviously, every industry is is increasingly licensed and regulated and controlled. You can't do anything. I've been
0: tweeting now about this. um, I mean... Well, Well, let's dig into that. I mean, I think you and I, this is probably an area where you and I would agree. I would say in some ways, I'm a fan of regulation and you would definitely say you're not. But I think in the end, we sort of mean similar things. (laughs) So like from, you know, to my mind, regulation is the rules of the game and there have to be rules and people should follow them. And what we're seeing now is regulation as regulatory capture, which is like the exact opposite of what you want from regulation. We're seeing regulation that, that further entrenches this advantage the incumbents dynamic, right? makes it brutally hard for new entrants to pay some, whatever, you know, yearly licensing fee. Like all of the small players get washed out before they start to exist because you have this crushing, you know, essentially burden of entrenched regulatory policies that doesn't really let any of that stuff bloom. It doesn't Um, doesn't allow your new model
1: and the cost of compliance, you know, you can't raise $3 million to put together your compliance program totally before you really started producing revenue. And so, so I, we
0: simultaneously I, have too much and not enough regulation, right? right. I'm, I was gonna say,
1: I'm a, I'm a big believer in the rule of law. Like, it should be illegal to last and yeah. <laughs> take their money. It should be illegal to defraud people and cheat them and, and you know, steal from them and these things. I vaguely remember the rule of law. <laughs> but regulation is when they uh, uh, do a couple of things. One is um, guilty until proven innocent. So yeah. regulated industry, you have to prove your innocence with, without there being any evidence of any actual crime. Number two, of course, regulation completely breaks down the separation of powers, right? So in the constitution, um, and for people that are listening from abroad, you know, there's several things that were unique about the American experiment. And one which, one of which was separate government into three branches, the legislature totally. who writes the laws, the judiciary who tries the cases and determines the fact of whether or not you broke that law, and then the executive which enforces the law, um, a regulatory agency writes the law, judges the law, and enforces it. And so that, and, and of course, you're appealing to the person who wrote the regulation to say, "Please, please show me mercy, my lord." It is not the same thing as you know the cops arresting. Yeah, that's him, fair. You're petitioning yeah. a court which is presumed to be disinterested, um, and you know even a jury of your peers you're petitioning the regulator themselves.
0: Yeah. Um, and what you're describing here effectively flips the burden of proof, right? Which right. is the problem. And, right. and that that's just, that is the, it's the dirtiest way to win an argument. <laughs> and it is a piss poor way to legislate. <laughs> and then
1: they have these vague statutes of, you know, what constitutes, you know, securities manipulation, for example. So there's been a lot of stuff that's gone on with Elon Musk. Um, and even before the, the Twitter, I don't even know whether you call it adventure to not on what the word for it is, but long before that was this is six, eight months ago, his brother sold some shares in Tesla. Yeah. And there were a lot of people arguing that that should be illegal under the securities act, that that should be a required, um, you know, disclosure that has to go through. Like everybody has to have a chance to front run his brother from, you know, front run his brother selling the shares. As yeah. if it was Elon himself, and I'm like, well, that's an interesting expansion of the the powers of the regulator. What does that really, you know, what does that really serve? So, with regulation, you have non objective law where it's impossible to know in advance whether something is illegal or whether something is legal. My favorite example for that, and I started to get into this whole thing around the time that um, there was the Microsoft trial. Uh, antitrust for bundling the browser with the operating system at around the same time that there was the OJ trial, um, you know, for the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson. Yeah. And um, I said, compare and contrast these two things. And the OJ trial, the controversy, you know, there was no controversy as to whether or not it was illegal or should be illegal to beat and stab somebody to death. The entire controversy right. was over the fact of whether or not OJ did that to the, to the, you know, to the deceased. Which is how it should be, and, and it went to trial and, and he was acquitted and, and whatever. In the Microsoft trial, there was no controversy over the facts. The fact is they bundled the browser with the operating system. The entire controversy was whether it was illegal or should be illegal, with you know, PhD, you know, JD wonks uh, you know, um, wonks weighing in as to you know their opinions of this. And you know, clearly this is a major corporation, they had the advice of counsel. They didn't think yep. that what they were doing was illegal at the time they did it. And then they have to go to court where it has to be determined whether it should be illegal. I mean, how do you run a business in an environment where you can't know in advance whether something is legal or illegal? So it creates uncertainty and you get a hesitancy to invest. You get less yep. invention. you know, a poorer, a dearth of consumer products, fewer of them at higher prices. Um,
0: and, and so how, how do you think society should approach stuff like antitrust? Well, I, it it starts with, and
1: I've tweeted a few, few times about this. To the extent that a company abuses its so-called market power, that is to the extent to which it actually reduces its market power. You know, if you try to twist, you know, if you try to nudge, I, used to, I love that term from Cass Sunstein when he was yeah. selling Obamacare. If you try to nudge your customers, which means you know, force strong arm, twist their arm, you know, whatever, um, that is the extent to which. Uh, all sorts of negative things are happening that you're actually losing that power, and somebody might, you know, might be in a position where they have no choice today. But you know, people are stateful, yeah. so I, I don't, I don't, I don't actually believe in the in the whole monopoly theory of the left, anyways. Um, you know, number one, and um, you know, in a free market, as long as someone else has the right to compete. Um, Not that the government manages and has some central planner to find for each market what's the right number of competitors, um, which is non-objective, and how do you define the market and what are the substitutes for the market anyway, um, you know, and so on. Um, There will always be the next thing if a company is abusing its customers. Now, what you find, the classic cases in history, uh, Standard Oil, Alcoa, Aluminum, to name two, We're actually hated the most and Microsoft were bundling the browser for that matter, hated the most, not because they were abusing their customers, but because they were always pushing themselves to deliver more to their customers and their competitors are saying, hey, that's not fair to us. We need to have less for your customer at higher prices that gives us room, you know, to to compete. It's like, well, who is this law supposed to be protecting?
0: We kind of lost lost the the tune here. Um, So to me, this thing, it always gets complex when you have a when you have a scenario like I think we have now where there is a lot of like regulatory capture style dynamics and That's those right. are the things which are protecting and entrenching monopolistic behavior. Like I'd love to see that end. That's <laughs> right. I
1: and mean, that should be the first step that we can all agree on. Yeah. Uh, is, so, you know,
0: I, I, But, 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 it, it, but it's, it's weird. The way we go about ending it is weird, to your point. Which is like, you know, we set up this situation where there's like regulatory capture. Then people get mad about that. And then we go like smash the company, which is very weird. Or what we're doing now with, with, you know, in the macro where it's like, well, we've, we've got this really weird situation where there's sort of supply shock and whatever else. And so our solution is at a time where everyone's levered up, we're just going to crush demand. I'm like that is just the worst possible way for us to get out of this. thing. We um, tweeted a few times about there's a
1: huge shortage of baby formula right now. Yeah. So it turns out when you look at it that the FDA has forced Abbott and Gerber at least to close plants. Mm. Now, why? Well, you know, it gets into the abundance of caution. You know, the four babies got sick. No particular evidence actually linking them to Abbott uh, food, but, um, you know, plant closed. The philosophy seems to be we'd rather have millions of babies starve than, you know, take the risk that four babies who got sick. Uh, I mean, you presume yeah.
0: there's a philosophy guiding this,
1: <laughs> right? And um, anyway, so uh, some congresswoman, you know, decided something has to be done, and um, appropriated. It was it was actually a tiny amount of money. It was only twenty eight million dollars, which I'm going to stand for our government He's today. Saying, you can't even get out of like that the, for twenty eight million dollars. That's the
0: change left on the dresser. <laughs> that's right.
1: Um, you know, appropriated twenty eight million dollars to. Give to the FDA and hire more regulators. Yeah, I'm just like we had a problem that there were too many regulators that were too overactive, shutting down plants and causing a shortage. And now we're going to hire more regulators. Yeah. Um, that'll fix it. And so every time, I think here's how I look at it: the regulation creates incredible perverse incentives, and then of course the companies that are subject to perverse incentives. Behave perversely. That's you. So look at how these evil capitalists are behaving. We need more regulation because otherwise, look how perverse they would be without regulation. And so then we, we create more regulation, and then there's more perverse incentives and more perverse behaviors and more perverse outcomes. And you know, if you don't stop it, you get all the way to Venezuela.
0: You know, at some point. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, you know these dynamics are really funny. I, there's a, uh, a local business here who's building it. It's a gym, and they uh, they built sort of an outdoor expansion, and um, and the fire department, you know, they're like trying to put this thing up so they can, you know, make it through COVID because it's like people want to be outside a little more and wherever. else? Fire department charged them like seven thousand dollars to certify the thing, and it's it's an outdoors expansion. <laughs> like, what kind of fire risk are we talking about? Like just, just, nothing to catch fire, right? You just walk that way. <laughs> if there's a fire anywhere near the building, you're gonna be fine.
2: That stuff floor. drives me.
0: You're yes. outdoors. Yeah, and and you know it's a business that's trying to sort of like bob and weave in this very difficult environment, and 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 and, and the point, of course, is to preserve their ability to make money. And it's just sort of this like huge chunk. The seven grand is like, you know, it's just a lot of money out of nowhere. that stuff drives me bananas
1: (laughs) for companies revenues have already been crushed. It's already dealing with all sorts of other problems.
0: And Uh, I think that one of the the issues is there's no, you know, like you look at that as an outsider and you're like, well, couldn't they just sort of look at that and make an exception and be like, look, you're fine. And, and I, I think the problem with the application of regulation a lot of times is that that's just not how it goes. It has to be this paint everything with the same brush kind of approach. And when you do that, you directly reduce human dynamism because you're not responding to the situation.
1: Oh, wait a minute—they do create exceptions, but the exceptions are created wow. for their cronies.
0: Fair enough. <laughs>
1: so, if you have yeah. the rule of law, I mean, you need a consistent application, equal protection, yeah. and all that. If the law, right. if the law is such that you have to constantly make exceptions for it, I would suggest you gotta you gotta reconsider that law. Like, if there's a law against murder. Nobody would ever argue for any exceptions. Yeah. You know, law against rape, a law against burning somebody's store down. There shouldn't be any exceptions. Yeah, if you have to do those things, you to present. But yeah. um, you know, law against, you know, building an outdoor. I'm gonna guess that not only was it outdoor, but it was concrete and steel. There wasn't actually anything flammable there anyway. It was steel,
0: it's all steel. Right. <laughs> it was not like flammable. And the building's brick. I'm like, what are we? <laughs> Right. I mean, I mean, uh, and simultaneously, I understand that, like, you know, let's say you're doing new construction, maybe you do have to come have them certify it, I don't know, once or something, right? Like, I I think we don't want people burning in buildings that were poorly designed, surely, but like, this isn't that situation. Right.
1: Yeah. So let's turn to um, Bitcoin. I was gonna say Bitcoin and crypto. One of the memes that's floating around there right now is that Bitcoin is not crypto, crypto is something else. And every every time the Bitcoiners try to differentiate themselves from what they call the quote unquote shit coins. um, I like to post, there's a um, uh, Dilbert uh, strip that Dilbert goes to, I don't know if you've ever seen me post this, Travis. Dilbert goes to Dogbert and he says, what you doing, Dogbert? And Dogbert says, I'm writing press releases for fake green energy scams. Here, listen to this. By 2030, <laughs> scientists predict that you'll be able to power your home from the breeze with the breeze from your refrigerator door. And and Dilbert goes, "Oh great! Now how am I supposed to tell the real ones from the fake ones?" And Dogbert looks up at him and he goes, "This is the best part." I mean, it's already funny, but the best part, he goes, "Seriously, you think there are real ones?" Yeah, totally,
0: totally. So it's a big. Yeah, point. I mean.
1: It's not crypto. It's not shit coins. Bitcoin is something completely other. It's it's a real green energy, uh, you know, thing and not
0: a scam. Um, I mean, it's, you know, the, the deep, the deepest irony of the entire crypto thing is that, you know, they fancy themselves Austrians, a lot of them, which I find so funny because it is the most woeful capital misallocation I've ever seen ever. <laughs> rack put you know there's racks of these asics just like tons of silicon the time where there's a chip shortage they're putting them in warehouses which they then spend a bunch of energy to run and cool and it's like it's it's literally just waste
1: a big theme of mine is that even if somebody agrees with you on the conclusion and argues for something that you like but if the argument is total rubbish, you should. In fact, you almost have a, a moral duty to stand up and say this is rubbish. So there was a totally. guy yesterday. I, I was sort of shit posting late last night as I was working as on the document in, in between revising the document, I was going back and forth. And this guy says that you know the price of Bitcoin is set by the hodlers. And I said, "I saw that, that one. Jeez. That is literally how prices are not set." Yes. I, I was tempted to say, "Hey, Austrians that are on board the Bitcoin thing, is there anybody that would you care to school your, you know, fellow traveler?" And I was like, "You yeah. know, I'm not, not going to go that far. I'm not going to say that." But yeah. that's exactly how prices aren't set. But that's how the Marxists and all the other people think that prices are
0: set. Well, this and, is again the, the great irony here. Bitcoin is a, it's a variant of Marxism, which I find just it's mind numbing that it's marketed as the they, they a theory of value. It, it's 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 a whole host of it. I mean, you think about like what, like I, I did some labor and therefore I should be able to sol- hold that for all eternity. And it should ingrate this one thing that I did, which I traded for money. I should be able to then snowball that value forward forever. It's ridiculous. I mean, a human economy cannot work like that. It's just patently absurd. You have all these people believing it. It's really, it's truly amazing. There's that piece of it. And then there is th- this piece where like, know the 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 entire store of value thing is just really just kind of a trip because if you if you were to think about a store of value in the essence like if you make a perfect store of value it would mean that that thing this one unit is now pinned to all other prices right forward in time so that thing can forever buy ax loaves of bread or whatever well great you just killed markets that is literally you're describing price fixing (laughs) it's like it is not a goal
1: deal that wheat should be this and shoes should be this and the ratio should be fixed at all times. Yes. So- yeah, like that, Great Stalin, good work. <laughs> I'm, I'm working on a paper um, looking at uh, uh, the term is anti-concepts. These are rationally unusual yeah. terms. I love that. In some way, I'm, I'm going to call this term. And um, one of the anti-concepts that I delve into was store value and that all of the rhetoric, it's a lot like crypto or Bitcoin where they use rhetoric like coin and money. Yes. They use all these terms yes. that evoke something that really have nothing whatsoever to do with the reality, nothing. but they're just really great branding. So this yes. idea of store of value evokes this picture of like um you know, container, like a water jug, and you pour yes. water into it, and then you as long as you put the stopper on it, it should hold the water in theory forever. And then when you're ready, you you know, you unscrew the top and you pour the water out <laughs> and you know it, it's good indefinitely. And um, that's not how even gold works. When yeah. The gold people say store of value, but yeah. in the store, and then other languages that use retention or retain, it's like a retaining wall. Like you have like wet silt that yeah. wants to ooze down the hill, and then you put up this barrier that, you know, but what, do you, what is it yeah. you're trying to capture? You're trying to capture, well, of course, you have the Michael Saylor's who say it's pure digital energy, man. I can't even gauge with that. <laughs> and uh, of course you know if you try to take your Bitcoin container, you're not going to get any oil out of it um, yeah. or that gas or whatever uh, form of energy but ultimately labor right? it did the yeah. work and now the work is encapsulated in this thing and um, <laughs> so Dixon, did you want to put up some um tweets and uh...
2: well I just so I, I think this was one that that y'all were y'all were kind of riffing on just the whole the whole energy dynamic i mean travis you said you you just can't engage with it it looks like you did engage with it a little oh, bit yeah. <laughs> i mean
0: i should rephrase i engage with it all the time I'm just not a serious manner. <laughs> um yeah i mean you know that I, I i sort of like I, I kind of feel for people who get bound up in these ideas a little bit you know um I, I think it happens to all of us at various levels like you have to constantly be on the watch for sort of these you know, these really um, custom-designed memetic warfare ideas that get thrown at us. Uh, you know, the the internet has made people very good at marketing and branding because it's this constant sort of cycling lab. And I'm I'm always fascinated to find um, people like you, Keith, who don't. You know, I mean, like you're you're in the gold business, and you're sitting here saying like the store of value thing is not the way to frame this. I just love that. Like, it's so rare to find. To, to to be able to engage with people who are who are not taking the bait on a concept that would serve them because the concept is wrong.
1: <laughs> so, I, I don't I don't know if if we knew each other or if you followed my work way back when I made a lot of enemies in the gold All community. Uh, particularly, I mean, it wasn't even the store of value thing. I, I guess the first first enemies enemies I created when I said fractional reserve isn't the problem, it's duration mismatch. Yeah. Um, but then later, you know, the biggest meme in the gold community is manipulation. That right.
0: That's conspiracy. Oh, yes. Conspiracy. This is how I found you. Brent turned me on to that piece. It's
1: a great piece. Um, and, uh, you know, there's this vast conspiracy that over a period of decades is holding the price of gold thousands or tens of thousands of dollars below where it should be for decades. And, you know, given the number of banks that are involved, and every bank would have their trading desks and internal audit and external audit and regular. There'd be thousands of people, if not tens of thousands of people that would be aware of this highly illegal fraudulent scheme, which somehow, you know, there's no no hide nor hair of other yeah, than yeah. Um, the London Whisperer or whatever, whatever his name was. Um, yeah. And um, anyways, I would I would take that on and say, you're not doing gold any any favors by promoting this rubbish. There's a lot of good reasons to buy gold and happen to talk about them, but this totally. is not. And... You know, people like Turd Ferguson, whose um, real name is Craig Hemke, um, Max Kaiser actually dropped the F bomb on my name on his show. This is, you know, a decade
0: ago, nice. whatever. Because, <laughs> I, I mean, if Max Kaiser's not attacking you, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> that's right. Because um, he said, buy silver to crash JP Morgan.
1: Yeah. Said, oh, you know, I said there's two problems with the thesis one, buying silver is not going to crash JP Morgan. You've got the, the whole thing fundamentally wrong. Um, and number two, nobody in their right mind should want to crash J.P. Morgan. <laughs> yes, exactly. Even if you think that the banking system is problematic, you should be looking for a graceful transition to something better and not the calamity of yes. that. Anyway, so he decided I was, I was his enemy and, and actually was cursing at me. And um, so I, I made a lot of enemies doing that, but I, I think it's a really important principle that if your yeah. friends are making a rubbish argument, nominally in support of the thing that you agree on,
0: they're actually undermining it. I totally agree with that. Yeah, there's this whole thing, the false dichotomy gets thrown around in finance. Do you wanna be right or do you wanna make money? I'm like, well, I wanna be right for the right reasons. And I trust that in the fullness of time, that will work out. (laughs) That's right. And they're just saying, no, just go
1: all into Bitcoin because it's going (laughs) up or it was going up. Obviously that that dynamic has been broken. Down 5% yeah. of this, so this
2: morning. But here's one. So I think in the beginning, Travis, you talked about just the importance of, of, um, of balance sheets. And I, and I realize you're quoting another person's thread here, but um, I'm actually going to read this just because, you know, we've got some listeners who will only be listening to the audio. So just for, for yeah. their sake, let me, let me, um I'll, I'll, I'll read the tweet and then I'll, I'll read the quoted tweet tweet. And then I'll read uh, what Travis says. So Um, Travis quotes conclusion, both bank issued money and Bitcoin is written into existence. The latter, though, requires huge amounts of energy before that creation from nothing occurs and the thing created has no liability side. In fact, it's simply a numerical noun. And then uh, Travis uh, uh, tweets, excellent thread and agreed. The great irony of Bitcoin is that it is, in fact, purely unbacked in a way that fiat is not because of a basic failure to understand balance sheets and money as epiphen- epiphenomenal thereof.
0: Yeah. I mean, sometimes I just get real deep in the big words. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I think the thing, you know, if you want to go, if you want to understand finance, just get deep into balance sheets because you learn, you know, some of these, some of the stuff that I, they really kind of blew my mind when I went down that route is, um, you know, saving and s- saving and, um, debt are kind of the same, like they're two sides of the same thing, right? Because if you're, if I'm going to take my money, I'm going to save it somewhere. So you can do that one of two ways. You can either have a bearer instrument, which again, one of the reasons gold is interesting. You can sort of, you know, save yourself. But even then, if you, if you just sort of run with this balance sheet thing to get into the mindset of, of, of the world's balance sheets, you have a safe in your house, and that safe has a balance sheet. And if you put a thousand dollars of gold in there, it owes you that gold in some sense, right? If we're going with the everything is balance sheets, and all of this stuff breaks down into you're, you're really getting philosophical. Well, yes, I mean, I just think it's like it, it's it's informative to take an almost absolutist framing to this stuff, right? Because because even then, like whether you're storing your gold with someone like you all, or whether you're storing your gold in your safe, there's a there's a carry cost associated with that. Like you got to pay the rent. You got to pay property taxes. There is a cost, and so all of these understanding these really basic fundamentals like balance sheets, P and Ls, um, that will help that will help disambiguate some of the horseshit that you see online, right? And so when you think when you think about this, is one of my my favorite sort of things to, to say over and over here is that um, I think part of what's going on with crypto is that it, it's essentially this little the number go up phenomena is essentially because they've created a little pocket Weimar Republic here, right? So you've created, if you imagine crypto as a country and, and it's a country that doesn't have any borders, it just exists you know, in the metaverse. <laughs> um, within that country, the central bank has gone insane and is printing a lot of money, right? And, and you're seeing the prices of things within that country, which are crypto tokens, moon. But the phenomena that people are experiencing there is like being in Germany and seeing bread bread moon and think bread is a good investment. Like that just doesn't quite work. What's happening is that there is a bunch of funny money being created inside of an ecosystem and there are dynamics resulting from that. And some people will be able to get their money out of there maybe, right? But like that is not an ecosystem that you want to engage with. And if you start trying to model this stuff out in terms of balance sheets, that is the kind of stuff that sort of, that's how you peel back the layer of that, the layers of that onion. I mean, when you are um, Bitcoin, if you buy Bitcoin, um, there is a sense in, in which you are giving money, you expect to get back out later to people who you have no idea who they are. It's a network of uh, totally unaccredited, and they may be accredited, we have no idea. So you have to presume they're not, totally unaccredited people, You're putting that money in there, and you're expecting to be able to withdraw it later. That's insane.
1: (laughs) I was gonna say there's there's another fundamental error there, and that is this idea of putting money and withdrawing. Yeah. What what they gloss over is that you didn't put anything. You gave your money to the previous guy who's exiting. Yes. So so he's he's actually leaving the movie theater, and you've given him your money to get his ticket stub because yeah. now you may think of it as getting your money back later with interest or whatever, but actually the next guy is going to give you even more of his money. Maybe yeah. you hope.
0: Yeah. And then- I mean, this, it, it's a freaking Ponzi scheme. And this is the, the thing that's so funny is that it is a, it is a self-aware Ponzi scheme. <laughs> you, know, you had, you had Sam Bankman fried go on odd lots with Weisenthal and describe this, like you put the money in a box, take more money. Out, and if people adopt the box, then you know you're, you're banking that more people will adopt the box so, and, and and matt levine's like you're literally describing a ponzi scheme <laughs> it's just yeah this is That's a right. series of networked ponzi schemes everyone's like well the safety is in diversification i'm like no the safety is not in diversification no. if you're diversifying ponzi schemes
2: <laughs> <laughs> this this was this was one of my favorite <laughs> this this image here
0: <laughs> totally Totally. Ponzi schemes, but network for safety. Like, it's just absurd. To bring
1: it full circle and and to continue with the movie theater analogy, you said, um, do you want to be right or do you want to make money?
0: Yeah.
1: In order to make money, you have to get out the exit door of the movie theater. Except all the exit doors are chained shut except for one, which is only half width. And there's a crowd of a million people. When 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 the movie theater is on fire and it's time to rush for the exit, there's a million people rushing for that exit. And you think that I'm going to be one of the first ones to get out the door?
0: Maybe you will be. Maybe. I mean, this is this is right. the, one of the downsides of American optimism, right? Is <laughs> that we're really good at bubbles because we always think we're going to be in that. We're going to be the first ones out the door.
2: The, I, there was actually a meme that circled, I think, on Twitter where I heard several people say, "You know, I'm long. I'm long short." I'm long like short duration ponzis and short late duration ponzis meaning i'm i'm taking i'm I'm taking the position that i'm going to be early enough to get out in time, but I'm shorting yeah. you know the people that that are going to get out late but
0: I'm a simple guy, I think maybe you just own productive assets <laughs> you know which i mean you all are effectively in the business of turning gold into a productive asset right you know that's the the key distinction
1: and i i you know' to make enemies with this one too. I define speculation. Is buying an asset and uh, you know later to sell, and the, the profit to the speculator comes from the savings or the wealth or the capital of the next speculator. Yeah. Investment is financing a productive activity, the profit totally. to the investor comes from the profit on that production.
0: That's yes,
1: a, it's very rewarding too. Like it's fun. <laughs> somebody's making more or new or at least an increased quantity of consumer goods or maybe producer goods is selling yep. those at a profit and is paying the investor part of that profit for the privilege of having had that investor's capital, whether it's equity or debt or whatever. Yep. And so fundamentally speculation and investment are opposites economically, although in a world where the Fed has deprived investment of most of its return, people yeah. it turn to speculation as like a, a surrogate in the mm-hmm. way that caffeine and then jolt and then cocaine is a surrogate for sleep. Totally. By the way, it makes you feel euphoric while it it kills you. Yeah. Yeah. Here we are.
0: (laughs) Well, this this has been awesome. This is fantastic. Thanks for having me on. This episode was brought to you by Monetary Metals. Monetary Metals is a different kind of gold company. Others buy and sell gold. Monetary Metals operates the gold yield marketplace a platform of products that offer a yield on gold paid in gold to investors and institutions, and our gold financing simplified, reliable financing denominated in gold with a built-in hedge for gold-using and gold-producing businesses. To learn more, visit www.monetary-metals.com. See you next time!